This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation. We are grateful for their continued support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners like you. Learn more at calliopeia.org. To make a donation, visit forthewild.world/donate or find us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us in other ways, consider sharing our episodes through social media or leaving us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Helena Norberg Hodge. So the mechanisms really fundamentally are doing the same thing and that is destroying the small and strengthening the big and it's not just small versus big but small local versus big global. Helena Norberg Hodge is a recipient of the Alternative Nobel Prize, the Arthur Morgan Award and the Goy Peace Prize for contributing to the revitalization of cultural and biological diversity and the strengthening of local communities and economies worldwide. She is author of the inspirational classic, Ancient Futures, and Local is Our Future. Helena is the founder and director of Local Futures and the International Alliance for Localization. Well, Helena, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to diving in with you. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. I've heard a lot about you. <laughs> Ditto. Well, I do think that many of our listeners are probably already acutely aware of the absurdity of our global trade system. Catching seafood in Alaska, sending it to China to be processed, then sending back to the United States to be sold, for example. But I think often we get fixated on the absurdity and then we forget to really interrogate why this is done, who benefits from it, and what policies support it. So why is it critically important to care about trade deals? And what are the tax policy loopholes that continue to uphold and even strengthen the wastefulness of our global trade system? Well, I would say the most important area to look at is trade treaties that in the name of free trade, have been, particularly since the Second World War, been a vehicle whereby global traders in money, in other words, the banks as well as the corporations, have been getting more and more freedom. So most people think about trade treaties as being deals between countries. What they don't realize is that the countries are tending to think that if they do a trade deal that will favor General Motors over Volvo in Sweden, you know, from America, that this is going to benefit 
their own country. And in actual fact, what's been going on is that these giant corporations that have become multinational, transnational, long time ago, at one point Mitsubishi even said to Japan, no, 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 we're not, we're not Japanese anymore because they are <laughs> operating globally and they're through the treaties are getting the freedom to move in and out of any country. And particularly in the last 30 years, there's been an escalation of these treaties that have allowed big businesses essentially to use cheap labor in so-called poor countries. And then uh, whether it's in manufacturing or even things like sitting in front of a phone all day answering questions about train inquiries in England, someone sitting in the Philippines is answering the questions. It actually turns out to be incredibly inefficient on top of everything else for ordinary uses, for ordinary citizens. But this global expansion of corporations through trade deals, I would argue the main reason why we are in this dire state of where we are extinguishing species as we speak, we are extinguishing jobs and livelihoods, and really importantly, too, we're extinguishing identities. Now, the way that works is that by helping the giant corporations that are operating globally, what's actually been set in motion is a type of giantism where it's impossible for these companies to respect and respond to diversity. The authenticity, the uniqueness, the incredible diversity of life becomes an inefficiency. It is standardization and monoculture that becomes necessary. And I, I don't want to give you my long answer. You know, I could go on, <laughs> I could go on for hours about this, but I would say that the best area to understand this is to look at food and farming and to just vision, you know, in front of your eyes, the way that bigger and bigger monocultures linked to larger and larger supermarkets and linked to importing food from all over the world so that in the you know, giant supermarket, you will find you know, items from every continent. And you get, you know, if people aren't paying attention to what's happening on the ground, if they don't see those monocultures, they think it's a great thing. You, know, you can get anything you want. But this system, which delivers this splendid diversity in the supermarket, is actually actively eliminating the diversity. So whether it's the species of plants, of animals, whether it's the different types of cheeses that were once made in France or different types of miso in Japan, all of that diversity is being eradicated. And more and more, this system not only imposes monoculture on, on the land, on, I should also mention in the sea, with trawling nets that can hold 13 jumbo jets, where you know life this is just lifted out and only a fraction of that is used. It's a it's a criminally wasteful. And maybe the most important thing to point out is that when you take any two bits of land and on one you produce monoculture, one thing. I'm only going to have you know, the same species of trees or fruits or trees or vegetables. 
on the other bit of land, you diversify. You will always be able to get more from the land on the diversified bit of land. Whether it's a square meter or a thousand square kilometers, you will always be able to be more productive. So what modern trade-based global agriculture has led to is a steady path towards not only producing less and less and less from each unit of land, but destroying the very land that was used for the production. It's creating the dust poles that we know about. So the urgent need is to shift towards more localized systems, which I, I hope we'll come back to. But also maybe in plain language, you know, I just want to say to people, think about the fact that every time you go to buy some food, and keep in mind, every person on the planet needs to eat every single day. There's no area, there's no issue, there's nothing that we do that's a more fundamental lever in shifting things towards greater health, towards ecological and human well-being than focusing on the food system. It was so good to hear this analysis, and it's something I think about a lot, this global trade insanity. And yeah, I'd like to ground listeners in the massive disparity between countries that are tremendously resource wealthy versus those that dominate the spheres of production and manufacturing. An example that immediately comes to mind is that of the chocolate industry, where the last time I checked, Ghana and Cota Ivory single-handedly hold over 50% of the market share of cacao beans. Yet the amount of money that they're able to generate in export earning is nothing in comparison to manufacturers' net sales. For example, in 2016, these two West African countries earned $5.7 billion in cacao exports, whereas in the same year, Hershey created $7.4 billion in net sales. So yeah, I wonder if you could begin our conversation by elaborating how distribution networks branding, marketing, and even intellectual property rights are assisting in this grave global robbery? Yes. I mean, what I would say is that, generally speaking, farmers everywhere in the world have been marginalized. And if we step back and look at the, the truth of what's been going on, we'll see that after the Second World War, these trade deals were brought in as a mechanism Supposedly, and I think in the minds of many of our leading politicians and so on, the idea was we're going to prevent another depression, we're going to prevent another world war by integrating all the economic activity under one umbrella. And so the World Bank, the IMF, and the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, is set up. I think the really important thing that we need to look at today is not so much the relationship between different countries as the relationship between this gradual takeover, and, and I mean takeover of every country. I'm saying that even America is captured by global banking and corporate system. It sounds a bit like a conspiracy, and I don't think it ever was a conscious conspiracy, but what had happened is that because the global traders in money and other goods, so the banks and other global actors had so much power, they were influencing governments already after the Second World War, 
and then this has been increasing. So there is still obviously a certain divide between rich countries and poor countries in terms of in, in if you look just at the dollar value and the dollar, if you like the sort of hourly wage, you'll see this huge difference between the majority of people in poor countries and the majority of people in so-called rich countries. But I have to say already in the 70s, again, when I came back to Sweden, having lived in this traditional culture of Ladakh and later on also working in Bhutan, as I came back, I saw extreme poverty in Sweden, a poverty that led me to have to talk about happiness and what was causing the sort of widespread depression. And, and later on now, we've got epidemics of anxiety. And, and when you actually start looking at the fabric of community, the intergenerational community fabric is something that we evolved with. So in the human sphere, was, we were deeply connected across the generations. And I came to realize how profoundly important that was in creating this wealth of self-acceptance and feeling completely fine with who you are and what you are and what a wealth that is. So in terms of the you know cacao and in terms of what's happening with Hershey and Nestle and so on, for sure there are huge injustices and they're not in any way to sort of be to be dismissed. But I think we're gonna miss, you know, sort of miss the point if we don't recognize that the global narrative that's been pushed on us as part of creating a corporate dominated global consumer culture is everywhere. Oof. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, well, a particular facet that I'd like to focus on a bit more is making the connection between trade agreements and climate change really explicit. It's been predicted that if nothing changes, by 2050, commercial ships and the aviation industry will make up 35% of the world's CO2 emissions. Additionally, the Trans-Pacific Partnership at one point sought to require that the U.S. Department of Energy approve all exports of liquid natural gas and embolden the fossil fuel industry to sue the government for trying to enact climate regulations, and while the U.S. ultimately ended up pulling out of this trade agreement. You know, this does highlight that trade agreements work to the detriment of creating an inhabitable Earth. And so I wonder if you think it's even possible to have trade agreements that seek to address the rampant environmental pollution that they've created in the first place. I think it's absolutely possible, but what it's going to require is that the movements, which are very significant of people around the world, who are, you know, particularly here engaged with climate, um, wake up to the arena they need to focus on. And I think, and I'm seeing a, a shift. There is a shift going on. It gives me hope because I've been, you know, I've been trying to raise awareness about it for the almost 45 years. And it's, it's definitely a willingness now. There's been, you know, the New York Times has even sort of cautiously stated, oh, well, maybe governments won't want to be so dependent on global trade anymore, you know, when you can't even get loop paper or masks in your own country, what's going on? And of course, remember again, how important the food side of it is. 
because we're talking about a, an arena that is transforming the natural world more massively than any other. So I think it's absolutely possible to have trade agreements, but no way are they going to be what we want without civic society at the table. So it means the first step is much greater awareness about scrutinizing these trade treaties. And then we'll find that even in Sweden, um, and I say even because we had little, you know, we're a bit more close to our governments. We feel that we have a little more access to what's going on. But there about four years ago, some journalists contacted me to say that in Sweden, they had passed a law that now trade treaties had to be negotiated in secrecy. They have generally been done in secrecy because it's, you know, it's quite specialized and people, you know, generally feel it's very technical. And even what you're relating there, some of what you just mentioned about those trade treaties, I'm not familiar with those details because it, it gets extremely complex. But the basic principle, the basic fact that these trade treaties are about giving global traders more freedom. That, and, and along with a few other key items here, should be what the movements focus on. And we need the, not just the environmental movement, we really need all of these people who are waking up to the fact that if we don't look at the economic trajectory, we're gonna end up I believe losing everything because what's happening because of this extractive, crazy, crazy, crazy economy is that more and more people are working harder and harder. We're talking about a poverty rising up into the middle classes. We're talking about all these people who supposedly are doing so much better in China and India. Those people are now earning so much more money, which is being held up as this great victory of globalization, working harder and harder and harder. I mean, we're talking about, you know, people splitting up families. It's a type of slave-like factory system. We're talking about the middle classes in Sweden, in America, in Germany, having to run faster, work harder than ever before, I've had economist friends document this. Juliet Shaw in, in America, at that time she was at Harvard. She wrote a book called The Overworked American, looking at how the average American was having to work one month more per year to stay in place. In England, my colleague Richard Dowthway wrote a book called The Growth Illusion. In that he showed basically the same pattern, but he looked at buying power. And so when you actually look at the real fact of how many hours you have to work to pay for your house, roof of your head, you know, to pay for your food, for education, healthcare, what's considered basic needs, you will see that we are all getting poorer. The scary thing is that as people get poorer, they are vulnerable to demagogues who are going to say, we're going to grow the economy for you. We're going to make your country great. Forget about all this climate and all this business about the Amazon. It's irrelevant. Important is to grow the economy and forget about looking after the immigrants and the poor. And we're going to really look after you. 
So we're seeing this swing to the right. So I'm arguing to the movements. I'm saying, please, please, any of you who care about what's happening to people, who care about the injustice of this system, including those cacao growers in this you know, crazy, unfair system, and talking about them being better off than we think, I'm not at all saying that they're in a good position, we're looking at a system that really is marginalizing the majority of humanity. And so if we care about the poverty and, and the injustice of that, and we see and care about the environmental disasters, let's please come together to demand that economic shift that so clearly can lead to both human and ecological improvements. And ultimately with this goal of human and ecological well-being, as we know, they are completely linked. We are nature, we are part of nature. like to read a passage from Poverty Alleviation at an International Development Organization, Resurrecting the Human Being as Subject, where the authors write, quote, while claiming to do the opposite, professionals in the field of international development have often been impoverishing global communities through Western economic and technological interventions enabled by the, quote, aid provided by intersected global financial institutions on urious, harmful, and coercive terms. It is ironic that the West, with all of its economic crashes, corporate scandals, addictive consumerism, runaway militarism, and unsustainable lifestyles, considers itself competent to, quote, develop the other three-fourths of the world's population, end quote. So, yeah, I'd like to explore the fallacy of rich and poor countries or developed and developing countries. So can you share with us how foreign aid really underpins these false understandings? Yeah, and again, I'd, I'd say that the foreign aid part of it has been fundamental and continues to be. But more frightening now is the massive accumulation of wealth in the hands, directly in the hands of global corporations and banks. And so a lot of the worst you know, changes now have to do with the free trade 
zones where corporations are able to move in and produce and do exactly as they like. But foreign aid has been part of this problem where we now know that in the name of aid, what was being introduced was increased dependence. There was an attempt you know, to sell and push technologies produced in the West. There was, a, you know, at every step, it wasn't aiding so-called poor countries to, to become genuinely wealthier. It was, it's taken on a language and a, yeah, a language that sounds perfect, beautiful. Now in the aid agencies is all about cultural, you know, diversity, about ecology. And at, when you look at what's actually happening is the introduction of structures that push people away from the land into ever larger megacities. So one of the most frightening things is that the entire system is now set with the help of foreign aid, but also within our own countries. So the mechanisms really fundamentally are doing the same thing, and that is destroying the small and strengthening the big. And it's not just small versus big, but small local versus big global. So whether it's the corner shop in, in New Hampshire in some village, or whether it's the, you know, the small village shop in, in a country in, on the other side of the world, they're all threatened by the takeover, essentially of the merging. And now it's, you know, we're talking about the information society, we're talking about the financialization of nature, the financialization of the world linked to high tech. So aid is involved in this, but most of it is now driven by private for-profit corporations. And these are publicly traded corporations. And that's an important thing for us to remember is that that's a sort of structure that's almost like a machine that's become you know, it's incapable of responding to ecological or social uh, realities and pressures because it's just, you know, this blind pursuit of profit. If a CEO decides, well, actually, this is a bit damaging, I really should make changes to care more for the soil or for the workers, they, they won't, they can't survive. There are some privately owned corporations that are able to behave in a more gentle and thoughtful way. But really, the problem is that we've got to get a clear look at the systemic problem of in every country now that I know of, there may be a few, very few exceptions. The taxes people pay are used in this machine-like way to subsidize private corporate enterprise. And those subsidies have included mega infrastructure, also with government aid in, in uh, so-called developing countries. But all the time, it's furthered this extractive accumulation of wealth at the top. And may, maybe also, if I could just mention, it's, it's really helpful for me to have realized that when this economic system started, the modern economy started, it was started by some white European men who were overtly racist, misogynist, and anti-nature. 
it's so important that we, we recognize that this, these overtly negative values are not necessarily carried by today's white male elites who are carrying out and continuing with a system that started with that very explicit, uh, you know, anti-nature, anti, uh, and, and of course, you know, genocide of indigenous people and so on. But you see, when they set that system up, fundamental to the economic principle that was born on the back of slavery, of genocide, and later with colonialism, the foundation of the economy was comparative advantage. This is this principle that was brought in. That principle says, don't be self-reliant, don't think it's good for your region to produce a range of things that you need. No, 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 you're going to be much better off if you specialize and export and you specialize in what you have a comparative advantage in. On the surface, you know, it sounds okay, but we have to remember it was set up by this global uh, sort of cabal, which, which wasn't, you know, exactly the, the sort of conspiracy that people might imagine today, but it was a very clear system that was blatantly about ripping people off around the world to make a few people rich. When we now look at the economy, we must reject this principle of comparative advantage in a fundamental way. So what are we talking about? Comparative advantage meant monoculture. You just produce cacao, you just produce cotton, you just produce sugar, tea, for us, the traders. And then you import everything you need. Well, guess who gets richer from this? The global traders. So now we have to recognize that inbuilt, endemic to the modern economy is, because of the principle of comparative advantage, monoculture, monocultural production, endemic to the modern economy, monoculture. Endemic to life is diversity, endemic. It's not just diversity in the sense of every cell, every person, every leaf being unique and different. But the miracle of life, each and every one of those cells is changing. It's alive. It's the most amazing miracle, this richness of relationships. And it's, the, it's the, what every spiritual teaching is about. We wake up to that magic of that interconnected, ever-rich, ever-mysterious, ever-unknowable fabric of life. And as we're in tune with that, you know, what I'm saying is I have seen, I have lived with people who were radiantly happy, who emanated such a deep sense of equanimity of rightness of feeling i'm fine the way i am but it wasn't about i it was a sort of a we sense so if we could wake up to that that we really must be looking at how can we collectively turn towards a way of doing things that is truly life affirming and i you know what what i'm saying from these 45 years of looking at what's happening in both industrialized countries and non-industrialized is that it really does require this localizing path instead of the globalizing. It's about 
essentially starting to rebuild greater self-reliance, which, by the way, goes hand in hand with greater self-respect, which goes hand in hand with lowering the gap between rich and poor. Yeah, I... Again, my answers are too long. I'll stop there. Mm-hmm. Well, there's just so much to say. You know, there's so much to analyze because it is global. It's these huge overarching issues. And, you know, now that we've spoken about globalization, I'd love to orient listeners to localization. And you point out that localization is about bringing the economy back to us. No longer does it have to revolve around the whims of transnational corporations, but instead it can nourish human health and well-being at the community level. So what are the benefits of an economic shift from global to local, and how is localization a wealth-building strategy? Again, I think it's really helpful to start with food and farming. And I just want to remind, you know, the listener again that, you know, it is Maybe I didn't say it before, but I usually always say it. And that is that every person on the planet needs food every day, you know, usually about three times a day. Now, just with that simple recognition that our governments around the world are separating us further and further from the source of that food, something that we need to survive every day. How is it that we're being separated further and further? How is it that something that's been transported for 10,000 miles will be cheaper than something that's been transported for one mile? Well, the basic structures and principles that I've been trying to outline are part of that. We have our governments using taxes, subsidies, and regulations to distort the economy to preference and favor the global traders at the expense of billions and billions of smaller businesses, enterprises of every kind. This is what we need to be looking at. And with that shift towards saying, no, we need to support the multitude of place-based ways of doing things. And if we start by looking at food, I hope many of you will be as inspired as I am because what I've helped to, I've helped to plant ideas around the world, including in California and you know in New York and going back to the 80s, and then um, yeah, for really starting in the 70s. And what I can report is that over these years, it's been slow, but there's a steady increase in local food initiatives absolutely steady increase and it's a miracle it's a miracle Uh, you know our work and the work of the people who've been doing this has been almost invisible i would say invisible had almost no support from the media almost no funding it's been sort of blood sweat and tears 90 percent i would say led by women all around the world, the things have happened like a woman in, in Devon, where, where we had a, an office and, and did quite a lot of work in helping to get the English local food movement started. And there, you know, she had heard that we'd set up farmers markets and that they really helped small farmers. Her husband was depressed on the verge of suicide 
started drinking, was just giving up because as a small farmer, he was just couldn't survive. Why? Because our taxes. So we, you know, we're ending up supporting this system that nobody wants, but we don't see the connection. So these small farmers around the world suffering, high suicide rate. Anyway, this woman had heard about the farmer's market that we had set up and she decided to try. And her story was so moving for me, um, you know, because she talked about, you know, it was quite difficult to persuade people. Even right now here in this area where I am, I've helped to start four farmers markets. They are so successful. People love them. Still now, as I'm trying to start a fifth farm because it's the best way of helping small farmers. It's still a struggle, <laughs> you know, it's amazing because the system, you know, is geared against it. But anyway, this woman, she persisted and the shopkeepers in the town where she wanted to do it were opposed to it. The council wasn't supportive, the local government, the farmers themselves. And this is also my experience with trying to set these things up. They're resistant, they, they don't think it's gonna work. And, you know, they're often aggressively and antagonistically against it. Even those who are going bankrupt. But anyway, she persisted. And finally, they had the habit first small market, because she hadn't been able to get that many growers, and it poured with rain. So that was like, this is going to be the end of this, you know, it's just, but even then it was so successful. And it went from strength to strength, and it's there, and it's bigger. And every day in my inbox, I get more of those stories every single day. So there is this silent local food movement growing. Interestingly enough, you know, a lot of people who are doing it are not necessarily thinking about the global system. They're not necessarily even calling what they do local. And I would uh, urge people to do so because this is much harder to co-opt local. The fashionable term now is region, but watch out, you know, it comes from big business. Nestle, um, what was the other one I just heard of recently? But Nestle is boasting of being regen. Um, so, uh, you know, we need a holistic analysis and local as one single word is probably the, the safest, but really it has to be thought of holistically. So it's a local system. Now, what happens when you have shorter distances between the farm and the consumer is that you get a market pressure towards diversification. The farmers previously have been pushed for these hundreds of years towards bigger and bigger monocultures. It goes against nature, it becomes harder and harder. You kill the soil. You think that by killing off all the you know, external life, the weeds, the worms, everything, you're going to be doing better. No, you're killing life. It becomes almost impossible to produce. You have to buy more external inputs. They become more and more expensive. You try to spray more. You have one hailstorm. It kills off everything. When you have diversity, you are working with life. You're actually even restoring space for wildlife, and you are getting more per unit of land, but vastly more in the highly diversified systems that we need to create. You might call it agroecology or permaculture, but what's really 
what really is the truth is that if we build on traditions where farming in many cases had been going on for thousands of years, we build on that local knowledge and increase the diversity, often by importing some things, but with care, being very careful about bringing in species from outside that might you know, become problematic weeds, etc. But anyway, in the local food movement, you can see, first of all, you know, the farmer, you know, right here, who's become a friend who said he'd been a farmer his whole life and felt like a serf. There was such pressure for them to produce these standard-sized avocados for the central market, larger and larger quantities, pressured for lower and lower prices, and victims of these larger systems where supermarket chains will say, okay, we'll take X number of kilos from you or tons, um, and then suddenly turn around and say, sorry, no, no, we don't actually need it. Or, you know, they're under total victims of the pressures from the central market. And he said, you know, we felt like serfs, you know, just slaving away. And he said, after you started the farmer's market, it was like entering another galaxy. It's just such a pleasure. First of all, you're talking to consumers who don't care if every avocado is the same size. They even value seeing some little blemish as a sign that they haven't been sprayed. They talk to you about whether you had an effect from that hailstorm or how it's going without any rain. There's just this beautiful coming together where different needs are being met and answered through a we, you know, rather than an isolated I. So in the local food movement, it's where you'll see the most beneficial and the most important effects of localization. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about the term downshifting, and it comes to mind as we think about localization and scaling local and scaling down and finding ways to resist the work-spend lifestyle while also creating a resilient community. And a lot of questions come up for me here because localization obviously requires consumption, but I think we can implement localization while also creating a different sort of consumerism that isn't so rampant and devoid and constant. So this is somewhat of an open-ended question, but can you explain how community structures and community ownership models work in a local economy 
and how much consumerism is still necessitated under this model and what is really required of the community to sustain themselves. First of all, even now in this crisis situation, I want everybody to be aware that if there is a major climate emergency or say financial or political emergency and, and this insane trade infrastructure is blocked in some way, it's the supermarket shelves that are going to be empty in about four days. So focusing on building up greater food security should be the highest priority everywhere. Now, it turns out that focusing on that food security and in a, you know, and by that, I don't mean some kind of, of uh, you know, bunker building with, you know, having lots of tinned food. We're talking about building up of food security through localized food economies and growing. And we're talking about the importance of maintaining the seeds and finding the, the heritage seeds that are much more adapted to your cow. And the only way to protect that wealth of seeds is through growing it. Seed banks can't work at all in the long run. What you'll discover is if you start going into this movement of the local food systems, if there's so much meaningful work to be done, there is so there is so much joy in it. Because as I was saying earlier, it does help to restore wilderness as well. And I guess I've for myself, I my sort of religion is nature. It has always has been. I Grew up in Sweden. I was very lucky to have, you know, wild open spaces and with almost no people uh, around. And and that's still sort of my my church. And I still prefer to go out, you know, in unspoiled nature like that. But I'm aware that for many people, and to some extent for me too, that when you engage people, which is now happening as part of this whole localization movement prisoners have been given a chance for their last few months in prison to learn how to grow food and to learn it in community, you know, curated by people who help them to sit in circle, to get to know each other from that deeper place where we're talking to each other not to show off, which is this separation and fear, but to actually connect by being able to be more vulnerable and more honest about your feelings and who you really are on the inside so that along with growing food and learning those skills and actually becoming a productive part of this fabric of life it's amazing that it has just these multiple multiple effects of supporting greater self-esteem and a greater well of course increasing skills that also train people for a type of work that they just love and that there's such a need for and that they can continue with. So if you if you keep in mind just how much there is to, to be done in that arena, and if you can just, you know, if, I wish I could have the visuals to sort of show you on the one side, the dominant path supported by our government is making jobs available to fewer and fewer people and then you know the idea of some kind of uh, handout you know better social welfare or sort of ubi universal basic income 
as far as I'm concerned, they are not appealing because people like to feel that they're engaged with something meaningful, that they're doing something productive. And, and it's, a, of course, when people can't, it's a different thing. But when you, when you realize what these pressures mean on young people and you see, which I do very clearly and it's very scary, the epidemics of anxiety, of depression, uh, fear, insecurity, you really uh, see how urgent it is that we steer people in this other direction towards localization. What you just shared was really valuable. And there's this one part of localization that I think about a, a lot. And in localization, a strategic solution to globalized authoritarianism, you write, quote, a major challenge to the acceptance of a localist agenda among progressives has been the impression that local and natural are elitist and affordable only to those of comfortable means. Corporate think tanks have been effective in disseminating this message, but the relatively higher cost of healthy alternatives, whether organic food, local natural building materials and fibers, or alternative medicine, is largely a product of externalized costs and government subsidies for export-oriented corporate production. Strip away all that artificial support, and the cost of globalized products would be out of reach for most, end quote. And yeah, I'd really like to dig into the notion of elitism around localism, because I've encountered it often, and what I always think about are subsidies, and how global fossil fuel subsidies have created a false understanding of price and value. So do you think as a response to charges of elitism, we need subsidies for local goods? Well, I think absolutely we need to shift the subsidies. And and I think it's so important that instead of saying to people, if you care about the environment, if you care about the health, your health and your children's health, you should buy organic and shame on you if you don't. It's tragic that in the environmental movement, there's been a lot of that, you know, pointing the finger to the individual, making people feel guilty, you know, even if they drive their car, you know, they're living in a system where it's almost impossible to get around without a car. So it's really about collective change that we're talking and we're saying, let's start thinking about what we can do rather than what can I do. It's not at all to say that we shouldn't take any responsibility, but within the environmental movement, this has been a, a really a tragic thing is that, so when it comes to this food issue, instead of saying to people, let's come together to create a, a system where we can lower the price of healthy food, you know, you should spend more money on your food. Or we should be saying, let's get our voices heard and demand that the subsidies are changed so that the subsidies are not supporting old food from far away, but supporting our own local farmers, our own local varieties, and healthy non-chemical agriculture. I believe that if we could get the message out to the majority of people, left, right, center, whatever they are, if you said, would you prefer to have your taxes support the farmers in your area to support the businesses in your area, or would you prefer that your taxes end up supporting global corporations? I 
can almost guarantee that people would vote in the right direction. But that choice is not being made available to them because this distant trade regime and these distant corporations are in a way invisible. In another way, they're not. You know, everybody knows that big business is big and that they have too much power. And most people don't like that, but they end up usually focusing on government and then their sentiment becomes anger against government. And I see that even at the level of the local government here, that so many people who don't realize that the local government is actually carrying out essentially orders from above and they end up being like little policemen regulating us, you know, whether we're going five miles over the speed limit or if we want to build a staircase in our house, we can't have it, you know, one inch smaller or higher. And it's just so crazy that our taxes are ending up used to police us. When in the meanwhile, global corporations are getting away literally with murder, you know, in terms of these incredible, wasteful, polluting practices and, you know, slave-like conditions in these big factories in China and so on. So it's just, it's really not a system that I'm seeing that from the very bottom to the very top of society, nobody would really want that system if they could have the opportunity to step back and see it as a system, see, connect the dots and see how it all spins to make their own health, their own children less happy, less healthy. And of course now to present, on the other hand, the possibility of another systemic direction, it needs to be done in in a far better way than we've done. I mean, I, there's, you know, it's, it's really difficult to sort of, on the one hand, talk about the big, bad global, and then, as I've done, you know, wax lyrical about the local, but really what we also need to be talking about is the steps in between. And yes, a key step in between is that, yes, we do need to subsidize the localizing path. And not only that, it needs to be deregulated. Many of these regulations are either harmful, a lot of stuff that's brought in in the name of, of health and, and public welfare is actually not that. It's actually preventing the small, especially again in food and farming, from functioning more freely and far more efficiently. You know, we have examples of farmers in France, you know, been producing the most divine goat cheese for like five generations and then suddenly new EU regulations say they have to have tires in their ceiling as well as everywhere else in order to be able to keep operating and talking about thousands of dollars of rebuilding and so on which they couldn't afford and they had to go out of business. Anyway these are just millions and millions of examples like this that most people aren't aware of but once you once we could get out a clearer picture of the benefits of a shift towards localizing. We can present a picture which is not about revolution. It doesn't require some dramatic collapse. I'm afraid so many people are, you know, sort of waiting for some kind of a collapse. It doesn't require any major suffering from any significant numbers of people. Because if we were to insist on shifting taxes, subsidies, and regulations 
These are the mechanisms which governments use to steer the society. Now they're steering it towards more unemployment, more pollution, energy consumption, resource consumption together in one fell swoop. This globalizing path destroys jobs, massively increases energy use, resource use, and massively increases pollution. On the other path, we're doing the opposite. We're creating more livelihoods, vastly more, reducing energy use, reducing resource use. And as it happens, that path also leads to greater physical and emotional health. So health of ecosystems, health of people connected. And this could be done relatively smoothly, but it's like, you know, we started talking about the trade treaties and how could they ever be a good instrument? It's going to require that the social and environmental movements do realize that this is a central systemic arena and that we organize things so that we insist that civic society is at the table. So now as we're working out the treaties to take control of big businesses and banks, rather than them controlling our government and us, we need to be at the table. (laughs) Oh, yes. Well, I mean, there's definitely so much to uh, metabolize. And I really appreciate everywhere you took us yeah, this has been such a wonderful way to spend the afternoon. And thank you so much for giving us so much of your time and your, um, yeah, your heart and your mind. Well, thank you so much for doing this really important podcast. And I hope we can collaborate further. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Dana Anastasia and Chloe Levayon. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, and Francesca Glassbell. 